Welcome, friends, to Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast, where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. I'm your host, Curtis Kopotic, and I am joined by my co-host, Amber Brown, and today we are joined by Al Lewis. Al Lewis is a two-time best-selling author who's taught economics at Harvard, but today he's going to go over some fifth-grade math to show us how wellness programs are not really helping companies that are investing in them, and in some cases, they're actually harming employees. So have a listen to our interview with Al. All right, Al. So in doing some research and looking at your bio, it said that you have 30 years of ex- healthcare field experience. Can you just give us a quick peek into your background and what your experience is? Uh, yes. Uh, I did healthcare consulting at Bain & Company for eight years. And uh, then I, I I ran a uh, actually publicly traded a NASDAQ uh, company for a couple of years. It was a pretty pathetic NASDAQ company as NASDAQ companies go, you know, but I mean, how pathetic was it? Well, well, when I would get a, a letter from uh, NASDAQ on my desk, I would assume they were writing to say we were being delisted. Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> but uh, actually, we ended up doing pretty well. And, uh, and then we merged out of that. And that left me in 1995 kind of jobless. And as opposed to relocating, I just decided to put out a shingle and start in disease management, which at that point was an unknown field. And uh, some people actually, if you if you go on the search engines, I even get credited with inventing disease management, uh, which I didn't do. Oh my do. gosh! Well, I didn't, do it, but the search engines <laughs> say I did. <laughs> you can let and them tell that story. That's fine. Then I um, segued into when I figured out that disease management didn't work. <laughs> I actually uh, presented in a conference how it turned out we were miscalculating savings. And in fact, when you calculated them right, the savings went away. And uh, there was a, a, a blogger in the room who wrote, uh, you can still find it. You can still find the blog. It says, founding father of disease management astonishingly declares, my kid is ugly. <laughs> so, oh so, uh, wow. at, at that point you know i said i can't be pitching a a product that doesn't save money so i'm going to segue into wellness because everybody says wellness saves money but then the more stones i unturned in wellness the more i found that they that they're they didn't literally did not know how to do basic arithmetic and were claiming massive savings where anybody with a uh, fifth grade education could tell they were losing money so I wrote a book, and I, and I didn't mention any names. It's called Why Nobody Believes in Numbers. Um, so in any of it, I was very respectful, didn't mention any names. And I thought, you know, I would be welcomed into the wellness field because I was showing them how to do arithmetic, and they would be honest from now on. But in fact, just the opposite happened. I got completely blackballed from uh, conferences. And so then I went rogue and started pointing out all the, the the fact that the wellness did not work at all and all the savings were made up and in fact the employees were often being harmed uh, this was 2013 or so well you know come 2019 people have finally figured that out i knew it 6 years ago but people needed a lot more proof well, and that definitely happens a lot where the the first person to make the uh, discovery or to call the emperor naked, as you will, it, it takes a little others a little bit more longer time to catch on. Now, just to be clear, so we market ourselves at Fit for Work as a injury prevention and wellness company. So 
just to kind of lay out and make sure we're on the same page, what qualifies as a wellness program that you're describing? What you do would be not count as a type of wellness program that I'm describing, not at all. There's a very bright line between injury prevention and doing wellness for employees, which is what you do. I've, I've, I've looked hard at what you do versus the conventional EEOC type of um, wellness program, the so-called pry, poke, and prod programs, where you line up employees, poke them with needles, and tell them to eat more broccoli. That's the stuff that doesn't work. I'm a huge injury prevention person. In fact, the NASDAQ company that I mentioned earlier was in the comp field, and we worked with injury prevention all the time. Fantastic. So the bit definite delineation between those who do injury prevention and your brand of wellness is that, that you're describing is where you're trying to force health improvements upon employees. Correct. Right. Versus versus teaching them safety and in fact and ergonomics and helping them to avoid injury. Fantastic. Which is of course what you do. Yes. So now much like Warren Buffett's million dollar perfect bracket challenge for March Madness, you have formed your own challenge. So can you tell us the history about how you developed a $3 million wellness challenge offer? Yes. So there, what would happen is this goes back three or four years. I would say that I would prove mathematically that wellness doesn't work. And people would say, oh yeah, it does work. And And rather than have kind of a he said, she said, since mine was based on math, I said, tell you what, I've got a million dollars that says I'm right. And I wasn't getting any takers because the people in the wellness industry, the Health Enhancement Research Organization, all those people, they know that pride, poke, and pride programs are, are a complete waste of money. People, But in the, in the public, people don't understand mathematical proof. They do understand rewards. They do understand if somebody offers a million-dollar reward and nobody takes you up on it, then the person offering the reward is right and the other people are wrong. Well, that started out with a with million dollars. I didn't get any takers. I raised it to $2 million. I didn't get any takers. So now it's $3 million. And to be honest, I'm a little reluctant to go higher than that. <laughs> so at some point, I, I don't want to end up, you know, living under a bridge eating squirrel, right? So right, that, I mean, right. there's a 1% chance that I could lose on this. I would point out that one reason that when the when the reward goes up, just just I mean, first of all, if you look at the rules in on the reward, you can just Google on Al Lewis and three million dollar reward. You'll see the rules are very clear, very fair, very transparent, and if anything, favor the people trying to get the reward. So, for instance, there are five judges, and I'm only allowed to appoint one of them. That would be one, for instance. Another, for instance, is they don't have to prove wellness saves money. I have to prove wellness loses money. So it's a very fair reward, but there is an entry fee. I mean, I'm not doing this for free, and the entry fee is 10%. Now, that 10% gets used to pay the judges, you know, get the venue, and frankly, give me some money at the end. Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, if somebody's got so much hubris, they actually think wellness saves, uh, saves money, I want them to come forward because, you know, I, I could use another couple hundred thousand bucks. I mean, kids in college, whatnot, you know. So recently, an article came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, for those who don't know it. Now, it has been it has brought concerns to light about these wellness programs that you've exactly what you've been talking about. Uh, Can you let our listeners know what this study found 
and other studies that are similar that our listeners should should read to understand the perspective that you're coming from in this fifth grade math that you talk about? The JAMA study, like the National Bureau of Economic Research, I mean, major, major organizations, was a an actual controlled, randomly controlled trial. And in both cases, it showed that wellness did zero. I mean, literally zero for employees. The wellness industry said, oh, well, you know, the study's not long enough. The program wasn't that good. But the fact is, the programs were very standard and in both cases accomplished nothing. What makes the JAMA study unique is that the people who did it were people who had previously totally supported wellness and, in fact, used to get cited all the time by the wellness industry. See, the people at Harvard like wellness. Well, it turns out the people at Harvard like integrity better than wellness. So uh, they did another study, partly, I, I might add, because I had been criticizing the first study and, in fact, found precisely what I had been saying to be true. Now, this should not have been a revelation because, in fact, the previous 11 studies have all shown the exact same thing, that wellness loses money, doesn't move the health needle, and occasionally harms employees. And there is an article in Employee Benefit News. You can just Google on Employee Benefit News. It's time to believe the research. Wellness doesn't work. And you will find in that article, those 11 studies all cited, all linked. This is not, this is, this is not new news. I mean, this stuff does not work, period. You were just going into that it doesn't work. And often we hear the excuse that these studies haven't lasted long enough or, or just in general studies don't last long enough. How do you feel that ties into these studies that are coming out in JAMA and the, and the other publications that you mentioned? Well, the in fact, if you go back to the year 2000, which I have done, and you look at the the government database of all inpatient admissions, and you look at the so-called wellness-sensitive medical uh, admissions like uh, heart attacks and diabetes admissions, you over time you will find that in fact the Organ the the uh, commercially insured population, meaning the people the the employees who had access to more and more wellness programs over this century, actually showed worse performance in those admission categories than Medicare, Medicaid, and uninsured, where nobody had access to wellness. So this is a mathematical proof that over the long term, wellness, the so-called pride poke and pride programs, the old-fashioned wellness, has done nothing, which is one of the reasons I can offer the reward. If somebody wants to see the proof, you can go to my my uh, website, which is theysaidwhat.net, and uh, just uh, search on the word proof in the search box, and you'll see the proof and the links and everything. I mean, this is, a, this is not even a close question. This is not uh, an arguable thing, which is why I have the $3 million reward. And frankly, which is why I started a company to do exactly the opposite of what wellness vendors do, because I saw what a complete and utter waste of money and potential harms to employees that wellness vendors are doing. So kind of talking right there into the investment that these large employers have made with their wellness Curtis and I's relationship is more on the safety side and and the producing results. We're seeing companies start to realize that safety and employee health are connected. Have you noticed that they're kind of jumping on this trend too, or are they really still focusing on that wellness aspect? 
So if you look at the NIAS report on the Healthy Workplace 2025, it does, in fact, link safety and health very closely, but there is nothing in it by design. There is nothing in it about lining workers up to be to be screened. There are there are you know absolutely things that you can do in the workplace that keep employees. That, I mean, just just complying with OSHA regulations among other things, but going beyond that to keep employees healthy and therefore safe. Even things like violence prevention. I mean, I, I'm probably not telling you things that you don't already know, but there are hazards in the workplace. The hazards in the workplace have absolutely nothing to do with employees not eating enough broccoli. I noticed that on on one of your LinkedIn posts, the broccoli analogy. I do, I do like that. Wellness is all about it's about the broccoli. It's about the seatbelts. They're still they're still putting out these health risk assessments where they're you know asking you if you're buckling your seatbelt when you're driving. My response to that is if you're routinely hiring employees who don't know that they're supposed to be buckling their seatbelts when they're driving, you've got to look at your hiring <laughs> process, not your wellness and, process. And so it, it sounds like <laughs> the way you've seen it, and now I've been in the this industrial setting for over five years now, personally, and it appears that companies have treated this wellness, this poke, prod, and or pry, poke, and prod method and safety as what we do separately. Why do you think companies kept those two as separate categories instead of trying to combine them into one mission of, you know, we'll throw in some wellness, but it needs to be with safety? I suspect that's an organizational thing and that wellness reports through human resources, benefits, whatnot, and safety tends to go through uh, PNC or is more of a line responsibility. There are many, many managers, many line managers who uh, will obsess with safety, who can't stand workplace wellness programs. And why do you think that is? Because, because if you, and I have some of these on my website, like a typical workplace wellness program will say, oh, uh, you know, why don't you need to take an hour off and go do yoga? Well, you know, that's great if you're a human resources and you're the wellness vendor, but what if you're the line manager and suddenly you have one fewer person on the line because they're going to play, going to do yoga? You know, you're going to miss your, you're, you're either, you're either going to have to speed the line up or you're going to miss something or you're going to have to have a substitute person there. But whatever you do, you're going to get hit. You're going to get hit by if, if this happens enough it will show up. And that's why we will frequently hear from employees who say, yeah, I want to do the wellness thing, and but my managers are really opposed to it. And the wellness vendors will say, oh, we have to educate the managers on this. And I'm saying, no, the managers are absolutely right. I mean, they're, they're staffing for a reason. They have the number of people that they're supposed to have for a reason. And you don't want to be taking people away from, from the, uh, the optimal configuration of the workforce. Oh, definitely not. And definitely that workflow, it affects other people because then they have to pick up that loose ends and that puts them at greater risk as well. So what would you tell a large company who I'm sure can spend millions of dollars on these wellness programs? What do you tell them to do if they are not seeing the results that they want? I mean, it seems like that's a hard thing to say. Well, you spend all this money, you should cut the ties. How do you present that to them? It's not easy, and there are there are many many organizations that do wellness because they've always done wellness. I've had people say to me from companies you would have heard of, or one company you would have heard of, 
you know, Al, we think you're right, but if we stop doing wellness now, we're going to get the question, why have we been doing this the whole time if it doesn't work? So, you know, I always say wellness is a little bit like baseball and pennies and communism and Microsoft Outlook in the sense that, <laughs> yes, well, yes. So you say, what could these things have in common? Seriously. Baseball, pennies, Microsoft Outlook, and communism in the sense that if they did not already exist, nobody would invent them. We'll be right back to interview in a second, but I wanted to take a moment to tell you about the impact of early intervention. We are getting more and more calls here at Fit for Work from employers wanting to know what it is and how it works. In short, it's the quickest, most predictable way to reduce musculoskeletal injuries, and you will see tangible results in the year-over-year injuries in just six months, and the results only get better from there. Having one of our on-site injury prevention specialists, whether that be a PT, OT, athletic trainer, on-site weekly engaging with your employees on three leading indicators to an injury, which are early soreness, ergonomics, and behaviors, will drive down your injuries by at least 50%. And the reason this works is it's you're hitting all three of those leading indicators before it happens and doing that thousands and thousands of times per year, all without disrupting your operations. Imagine having a sudden turnaround on injuries. Your employees will love you for this. In fact, it's the number one bit of feedback that we get from workforces. For more information, go to wellworkforce.com, click on connect with us and get yourself started on a path to 50% less injuries. Just to keep going with that. So the other thing is in your particular question, you assume that they're not seeing results. They are seeing results. The results are fabricated. And I, there, there are three ways that people fabricate results. One is that they compare participants to non-participants, even though it's been proven up, down, sideways, backwards and forwards a million times that participants will always outperform non-participants, even if there is not a program to participate in. In fact, the wellness industry, the, the Health Enhancement Research Organization, which is their trade association, inadvertently proved that to be the case. When they had a study where they separated participants and non-participants, but due to the incompetence of the wellness vendor and the organization involved, they didn't start the wellness program for two years after separating the groups into people who wanted to participate and people didn't. Well, after those two years, the participants dramatically outperformed the non-participants, even though there was nothing to participate in. That's mind-boggling. So that's lie number one. Lie number two Oh, this is the thing is this happens all the time. Line number two, once again, which has been proven a million times, and any anybody in, you know, in first year biostatistics can see it. People will say, oh, our high risk people, 30% of them fell in risk. So our program was successful. Well, what they don't tell you is that an equal number of people who are low risk increased in risk, but they're not measuring the low risk people. So they're saying if high risk is heads and low risk is tails, they're saying, oh, you know, we flipped the heads and 50% of them went to tails. And therefore, we went down by 50%. Well, what they're not telling you is that if, in fact, they had flipped the tails, 50% of them would have gone to heads. You have amazing analogies. This is, it's, well, it's just so clear to see. And, and uh, you know, when you, when you put it into those, those specific visuals for me, I can definitely follow along there. Amber, I have to quote the immortal philosopher uh, George Bernard Shaw, who once wrote a letter to uh, Winston Churchill, and he said, 
Dear Winston, sorry this letter is so long. I didn't have time to make it short. Well, Amber, I've had 20 years to come up with a short analogy. Yes, so I love it. It took me a long time to get there. So kind of going back to when we were talking about the case studies, um, I wanted to touch a little bit on, you mentioned that some of these wellness programs actually negatively affect individuals. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Yes. This happens several ways. Uh, first, there are massive numbers of false positives. And uh, I've, I've gone on the record. So this is, you know, I'm, I've invited them to sue me. But Interactive Health in particular, which is a large wellness company, their entire business model is, is telling people how sick they are when they aren't. I have a, um, a, a whole explanation on the website about why, in many cases, False positives can be like 99% of all positives can be false. And when like interactive health is testing for some liver disease or something that people don't know they have, 99% of positives are false. So one way people get harmed is with all these ridiculous false positives. Another way people get harmed, which is related to the first, is that the large majority of wellness vendors uh, trash clinical guidelines and their screening their screening frequencies and the things they screen for are not recommended by the US Preventive Services Task Force. A third way they harm employees is through these uh, biggest loser contests and through so-called outcomes-based programs where employees have to lose weight or they get fined. Well, what people do and this has been shown up down and sideways is they they bulk up, you know, they 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 bulk up constipate themselves, all sorts of stuff, to have a high weight at the beginning when they get weighed in. And then they they do exactly the opposite and crash diet until the end. There's something called ballerina tea, you know, that's a diuretic, and they kind of starve themselves toward the end. This is extraordinarily unhealthy. And in fact, if you go to my website, they said what.net, the number one most read posting of all time is how to cheat in a workplace wellness competition. Wow. I mean, this is bringing me back yeah. to my wrestling days. Of the- yeah. And you I was really hoping you were... Thing. I was hoping you were going to bring up the weight loss challenge because I noticed that in one of the articles that I read that you wrote about, you know, just how how that can just trigger disordered eating habits that somebody maybe has carried on throughout their life. And it's, you know, not necessarily something that anybody would think of. We all, you know, everybody can lose weight. America is so overweight, you know, but but just even triggering something that somebody has been struggling with for so long can be a terrible detriment. Well, that, that in fact, was going to be the last item that I got to. You basically just um, said it for me. Sorry. But, uh, we, have, we, have, we have six case studies on the website, of, and one of them has a name in it, of employees who did, in fact, have eating disorders that were under control that got relapses triggered by, uh, by wellness programs. And then my favorite story of all, I, and you, you cannot make this stuff up is uh, Yale University has a uh, an outcomes it's not even an outcomes based program but you it's got a a big penalty associated with it uh, like many employers do which by the way is going to get you in trouble with the EEOC like it got Yale in trouble well it came out that Yale Yale's coaches the vendor that they were using their coaches were abusing their employees in many cases and for instance one of the things they had to do was get a mammogram well, there was a, a breast cancer survivor among the Yale employees who had had a double mastectomy, 
And so they called her to get a mammogram. And she said, well, I don't have any breast tissue. I had cancer, you know. And they said, well, you need to get a mammogram. It says here you need to get a mammogram. We're going to find you. It took three phone calls, including to the supervisor, for her to not have to get a mammogram. It just defies logic, but I can see yeah. how people get into this uh, routine of necessity where the program becomes more important than the people. Now, another thing that you've talked about and brought up is that oftentimes employees can be left with these surprise medical bills. How, how does that happen in these wellness programs where some of these bills can be dumped on the employee that's going through this? Well, it's not the wellness. Okay, so this is a great topic. It's not the wellness program itself that causes the surprise medical bills any more than it was the wellness program itself that caused the opioid ec epidemic. But what happens is that due to the obsession with wellness programs among many large corporations, they missed the opioid epidemic. And the wellness vendors that were supposed to be telling them how to make employees healthy had no interest in the in the opioid epidemic because because asking employees and uh, educating about opioids would have caused their participation rates to go down and that's what they get charged on so the wellness vendors deliberately or with gross negligence contributed to the opioid epidemics although the gross negligence of the benefits people to not notice has to be taken into account as well and now the next thing is the surprise medical bills which is like the new opioids you know the new thing that just uh, is not literally killing employees, but completely stressing them out, bankrupting them. 57% of employees have gotten surprise medical bills in the last five years. Well, the wellness industry has no clue about this. It's the number one thing that most employees are concerned about if you ask them, which is an unexpected, unaffordable healthcare bill. The healthcare industry is basically now designed to make its money on these things. In, in emergency situations, uh, employees essentially have no recourse because they don't know any better. They go to these emergency rooms thinking that they're in network, but the emergency rooms are staffed with out-of-network doctors. They get these huge bills and it, it completely stresses them out and bankrupts them and sometimes they get their wages garnished. This is precisely, by the way, uh, what my organization educates people on, is how to avoid surprise medical bills. And in fact, we do actually have a way that employers can put change their insurance cards just a little bit so that employees don't get hit with surprise medical bills. But we've, we don't get much uptake on that because... The wellness vendors have owned the relationships with these employers, and they haven't told employers about surprise medical bills. And employers don't realize that getting a surprise medical bill is, is at this point, a voluntary uh, you know, thing for employees to do. They don't have to get surprise medical bills anymore. I did notice that also when I was looking you up as far as the sticker for the insurance card. And in a way, how I, I briefly understood it was it takes the place of signing the paper that the medical institution puts in front of you when you show up as far as bills and things like that. Can you just touch on that just briefly for us? Yes. So there are two pieces involved here. The, the When you go to, to an emergency room or have an emergency admission, you or a, uh, you know, your, your uh, healthcare proxy will be given, and it's usually online these days, what looks like a standard set of terms and conditions, just the way when you go to a website or something, and you tend to sign them. You're consenting to treatment, but you're also consenting to 
to pay whatever charges they send your way that's not covered by insurance. You do not have to consent pay in order to consent to treatment. It is a law that if you show up with an emergency, you have to be treated. So what you can do instead of signing this is you put the sticker on your insurance that, that we've developed at Quizify, and it says, I consent to appropriate treatment and agree to be responsible for two times Medicare charges for this treatment. So you've capped how much you're agreeing to pay, and you've consented at the same time. But you've number one, you've only consented to appropriate treatment, so they can't start doing all sorts of weird tests to you. And number two, you have consented to pay a reasonable sum of money. Two times Medicare is considered reasonable, even though I, I, mean, I still think it's high. But it's instead of being three to 20 times Medicare, it's going to be two times Medicare. Such a simple tip to be able to reduce a lot of stress. And that's a really, I can see how that could be kind of a, you know, silent killer, if you will, where nobody really talks about that, but that really does affect so many people's lives more so than whether or not they need to lose five more pounds. Oh, there's a whole book about it now. It's called The Price We Pay by Marty, Dr. Marty McCary. It's actually, I think, on the New York Times bestseller list, albeit at the bottom and he he essentially devotes three chapters to surprise medical bills. So there are many, many of them out there. And if you as an employer say, well, I'm not I'm not hearing any complaints. Well, that's because your your uh, health care plan is so generous that you're the one who's paying for the extra, not the employee. Wow. So it kind of to sum it all up in, in your experience and in all your research that you've been able to find that these programs that try to pry, poke, and prod employees to change their habits only do more harm than good. They don't produce a return on investment, but there are other things that companies should be spending their money on, such as safety programs and educating employees how to work safe as opposed to outside health issues. And also just by teaching employees how to properly manage and work through the medical system, you will provide greater return on employees' health and concerns than you will through any other type of program. In the immortal words of the great philosopher Meatloaf, <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. That was such a fun interview with Al, and I feel like I walked away like he's my new friend, really. I like to get to know him and his $3 million challenge, that is a really great opportunity for any person, an individual, or a company to take him up on that. So if you feel that your company is able to prove that your pry, poke, and prod method is making that change, take him up on that offer. Go to his website. Check out those rules. It is an open invitation for anyone. And something that I took away from it, other than the $3 million offer, was really the, the even if they're just case studies, the evidence that's coming out on the harm that it, these wellness programs are doing to individual employees, whether it's someone that has struggled with disordered eating and these weight loss challenges, or it could even be somebody like other mental health issues that they may have completely under control, other health issues in general that somebody has under control. But when they have to adopt this non-opt-out 
wellness plan through their company, otherwise they're penalized, you know, it throws this whole system that they've got under control out of whack and really in the end harms that that individual. And I, I don't think that that's something that people have really taken a deeper look at. And I'm glad that Al points that out in the conversation today. Definitely. It's great that he shines a light on this, that it's something... I know people's heart is in the right place. They want this to, you know, they want to help employees and that's great. And he's just letting them know, well, what's the best way to do that? So we just want to thank you as the listener because we've come a long way in six months. We've gone from interviewing just our CEO and COO of Fit for Work to now we're, we're, we've just interviewed a two-time best-selling author. That is so great. And this podcast continues to grow and we are thrilled to have this platform to provide this to you as the listener. So thank you again for listening to this episode of Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. Please like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. To get started preventing injuries, visit our website at wellworkforce.com or please email us with any questions or comments to podcast at wellworkforce.com. And remember, prevention improves lives. Thank you.